Warning, this podcast may contain content and discussions of a graphic and mature nature. Some material may be inappropriate for children, and strong adult language may be present. Listener discretion is advised. Hey guys, thank you for tuning in to The Devil's Hour, a podcast for the strange and unusual. This is your host, Darius, and I'm here again with my friend, Carl. Hi. <laughs> it's just, I'm just here. I'm You're still just, here uh, for the first one episode. He's now. awkward, but it's okay. We've, uh, we've learned to love. Oh my God, to love it's so offensive. I'm normal. He's the awkward one. You're Let's right. get that straight right now. You're so right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, so, on our last episode, we touched on, you know, the origin and the early formative years of H.H. Holmes, and we covered the first half, really the majority of his crimes and murders. And for this episode, we're going to finish up uh, the rest of his murders. Then we're going to be speaking on his trial and death. And lastly, we'll be concluding with the possible connection between H.H. Holmes and Jack the Ripper. Um, So you definitely don't want to miss it. Thank you for tuning in, and um, let's jump into this. So after... He, after H.H. H. Holmes murdered Benjamin Peitzel, um, at the time, you know, fingerprint technology wasn't the preferred method of identification. Rather, the method used um, was body measurement. So authorities would, they would take the length of, of someone's head, their arm, the legs, um, the length of their, of their foot, uh, and they would use that to identify them. Um, because of the fake IDs that Holmes and Peitzel created, the deceased needed to be ID'd by a family member. Um, so Alice, the eldest daughter, positively ID'd her father's body, um, and the coroner ruled, after examining it, that the manner of death was indeed an accident. Um, and Carrie, Benjamin Peitzel's wife, she did not know that her husband had been murdered. She assumed he was in hiding, because that was part of the plan. H.H. Holmes knew that, and he took advantage of it. He told her, you know, yeah, everything's going great. Benjamin's fine. He's in hiding. Plan's going exactly as planned. Send me the kids because she was struggling financially without Benjamin there. She was struggling financially to feed them and take care of them. On top of that, H.H. Holmes, the reason he wanted her to send him the kids was because, was because his whole plan was to kill the entire family. Oh, well, wow. he was wa- like his big end goal. Yeah, he wanted to kill the whole Peitzel family because they already knew too much. If he killed his right-hand man, Benjamin Peitzel, then he has to finish the job and kill his his kids and um, his wife because they're going to ask too many questions. They already know about his illegal activities, the murders. They know a lot about, you know, a lot of things. So his plan was to kill off the whole family. So to do this, he convinced her to, to send the, her three kids or her kids to him Um, because she was having trouble providing for them and stuff like that. So she sent the three eldest, the three eldest kids to him and the two youngest she kept. Um, so Holmes would take, would travel across the country on a train with, um, her three kids. So it was two girls and a boy. 
um, that he had with him of the Peitzel family. And he would travel with them on the train and they would go, they would travel to different states and the girls would actually write letters to their mom. They wrote letters to their mom and they wrote letters to their grandparents. And in these letters, in these letters that the, the Peitzel daughters wrote, they would like state where they were like, oh, we're passing through Indiana or we're passing through here and through here. And actually later on, the police would use these letters that the Peitzel girls wrote to backtrack and figure out where and when certain events took place. And they were actually, the girls were actually unsung heroes because they were actually a big reason why they were able to convict H.H. Holmes of the murders and to even find what they what they ended up finding. So young Howard Peitzel, eight-year-old Howard Peitzel, um, he was the first one to die, unfortunately. Um, his body was cut up and burned and stuffed in the chimney of a house in Indiana. Um, so again, like they were traveling all over. So they stopped at a house in Indiana where they lodged. Um, and that's where H.H. H. Holmes killed the eight-year-old Howard Peitzel. Um, Holmes took the girls, Alice and Nellie, those are the two Peitzel daughters, uh, he took them north to Canada. The girls wrote letters to their mother and grandparents that were dated and detailed where they were traveling, but Holmes never mailed these letters. Um, they thought they were being mailed, and it's, it's even actually, it's even really sad to hear because when you read the letters, um, they, they, like I said, they wrote quite a bit, but the daughters begin writing like, like mom, like why aren't you writing? Why aren't you writing us back? Like, dang, yeah. It's like, can you imagine that? Like, to think that you know your mom just like abandoned you. Oh, they, I know. they thought that like they were at, they were asking in the the later letters like mom, why aren't you writing us back? Like Howard's not with us anymore. They even stayed in the letter. Of course, they don't know what happened to him, but they said Howard's not traveling with us anymore. So they're giving all these details in the letter, not knowing. You know, they're not doing it on purpose, like to like necessarily convict. H.H. Holmes, they trust him, right? They think he's a family friend, a friend of their dad's. They think their dad's still alive. But these letters end up becoming essential in convicting, you know, Holmes of these murders. Um, so, yeah, Holmes, they're writing all these letters. Holmes is keeping all these letters, which would later prove to be a big mistake. He never mails them, but he keeps them. I bet he kept them as, like, keepsakes or, like, trophies or whatever, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because, like, they would be his victims or whatever. I mean, yeah, definitely could have. I don't know why he didn't get rid of him. It seems like, you know, he's so intelligent. Why he, wouldn't he think to get rid of this evidence, you know? It's the only reason I could see, I think. Yeah, I think that's plausible for sure. Um, so, yeah, he never mailed the letters. Um, what he did, though, was he turned... He had a big luggage trunk, and he essentially turned it into a portable gas chamber. Um, and he drilled a hole at the top of it. So what he did on October 25th, 1894, is he stuffed both of the girls inside of the trunk um, with the drilled, you know, with the drilled hole at the top and he stuffed a hose inside and filled the trunk with poisonous gas. Damn. Um, and there is, both girls were naked when they did, like both girls were found naked stuffed in the trunk. So that, there is evidence that suggests that H.H. Holmes possibly molested or raped the girls before killing them. Though this can't be 100% confirmed, but the fact that they were found naked leads many to believe that he did molest him, you know? Yeah. Um, it's just, it's a really sad situation. Anytime kids are involved, you know. I know. Um, but you yeah. Messed up dude. Definitely messed up. No no remorse, no conscience. He also, I guess, was pretty handy if you could take a big luggage suitcase trunk and turn it into a gas chamber, you know? Not anyone can just do that. It takes pretty yeah. good knowledge and skill to be able to, you know, be able to make that, so... 
he knew what he was doing for sure. Yeah. Oh, you're you're 100 right. Um, so kind of backtracking a little bit, the police at this point in time, while he's committing the while he's yeah committing the murder of the Peitzel children, the police are already on his tail. They're already looking for him actually, and the reason they're looking for him is because um, not too long before this, he was in jail in Missouri. Um, and to be honest, I forgot why he was in jail, but he was in jail just for a short amount of time before he posted bail. But he was in, in jail in Missouri, and there he met uh, a fellow inmate named Marion Hedgepeth. Uh, and, you know, he was a, a famous robber, train robber at the time. And the, he, I don't know why, he, I think, I do know why actually, but H.H. Holmes confided in Hedgepath and told him about his scheme um, to murder Benjamin Peitzel and to commit insurance fraud um, and to collect the money from that. Um, And the reason why he confided in Hedgepath with all this information is because he needed help. He wanted help because Hedgepath knew a corrupt lawyer who could help. And so H.H. Holmes needed that from him he needed that contact so Holmes promised him he's like hey if you give me the name of this lawyer give me his contact information tell me where I can find him I will pay you $500 when, once we commit this insurance fraud I will send you $500 as payment and so Hedgepath said okay sounds good five bills five bills yeah back in the day especially that was a lot so they agreed that was good to go alright fast forward a little bit um, H.H. Holmes murders Benjamin Peitzel and he either forgets or just purposefully never pays Hedgepath the $500 that he owes him. So I don't really know if he forgot to do it, but judging by H.H. Holmes' history of not paying back what he owes, I'm willing to bet he probably did it on purpose. He probably was like, man, that guy's in jail. What is he going to do? You know? Yeah. And like, and like he's a train robber who's going to believe anything he says, you know? Exactly. Well, he shouldn't have done that because that ended up costing him because um, Hedgepath was reading the newspaper and sitting in his cell and he read about the murder of Benjamin Peitzel. As soon as he read about the murder, he instantly knew it was H.H. Holmes and he instantly knew that, hey, this guy didn't pay me my money. So what does he do? He calls, you know, calls over the warden and he confesses. He tells him everything they know about what H.H. Holmes had told him in jail. So with all this information with, regarding the murder, this insurance fraud, the police begin their search for H.H. Holmes and trying to track him down and get him specifically for insurance fraud. Um, and this would, you know, this would lead ultimately to his demise. So in Boston, Detective Gayer tracked down the elusive H.H. Holmes and arrested him for first-degree murder and fraud. Again, this is all information that uh, Marion Hedgepath had given to, to the warden while in jail out of spite but it ended up proving fatal for Holmes so he was finally tracked down and arrested Um, and the police would enter the murder castle and discover all the horrors that were inside you know among you know among them were chains numerous death devices they found piles of human and animal bones bloody undergarments dissection tables saturated with dry blood um Chicago police were inundated with reports of people missing from the World's Fair. 50 were eventually traced to the castle, but because of the heinous nature of how they were killed, it made it difficult to ID them. Most of the bones were crushed into fragments. 
And then, like I said, in the basement, there was that big furnace. So he was really good about getting rid of evidence, getting rid of, you know, pretty much any form of flesh. Or Especially back then with the investigative technology they had. Was like, like, even if they find a bunch of bones, they couldn't tell where they're from or anything like that, you know, so. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So pretty much once they arrest Holmes, it's all game over for him. They, they, they have the information they need. They find the letters on him. They find the letters from the girls on him. They find the trunk with the dead girls, with the dead Peitzel children's bodies, Al- Alice and Nellie. Um, they use the letters to, you know, use the letters to, to just verify where he was and they're able to backtrack his steps and everything. Um, and then uh, obviously going into the police investigating the murder castle itself was just like the nail in the coffin. Like all the evidence they yeah. needed was there. So the world dubbed Holmes the monster of 63rd Street, since that's where the murder hotel was located. They also call him the torture doctor. Um, and so there was a torture doctor, not death doctor, or doctor death, um, torture doctor. And overnight he transformed into apparently the mighty murderer, a nickname given by a journalist. That is really lame. That is really stupid. <laughs> that is really All stupid. his names really suck, actually. Yeah. He, he became more widely known than Jack the Ripper because... If you, you know, they were around the same time, but obviously Jack the Ripper had five victims. H.H. Holmes had a ton more and a whole freaking hotel castle thing to mm-hmm. like a death castle. So Jack the Ripper did not have that. So, But Jack the Ripper had the cooler name. So yeah, that's true. He wins out in the end. He did have a cooler name. But yeah, so he his fame, he grew, like his fame grew immensely, especially after he was captured. But H.H. Holmes loved it. He loved publicity. He loved being in the spotlight and people knowing him, you know, knowing what he did kind of thing. Yeah. Um, The murder castle piqued people's curiosity uh, so much that a businessman bought it in order to turn it into a morbid tourist attraction. So they were going to turn it into some sort of like museum type of thing, you know, exhibit. Yeah. Um, But days before the museum was set to open, the castle mysteriously burned to the ground. So obviously someone probably did not want that castle to continue to be in existence. Either that or they didn't want them to find something that was still there. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of mystery shrouded in it. Some people, it's a popular theory that um, one of H.H. Holmes' henchmen, um, I think his name, just to be 100% sure, is Pat Quinland. So we didn't really talk about him because he's not really that essential of of a character. I only say that because Benjamin Peitzel was like H.H. Holmes' right-hand man. They did like a lot of schemes together. Um, Pat Quinlan did do did do some schemes like for, I guess you could say, Holmes or at least with him. But he was mostly like a uh, caretaker. Like he mostly cleaned up after him type of thing. You know what I mean? Come, yeah. Think of it like a glorified butler, you know? Like like Alfred Pennyworth and yeah, for Bruce Wayne. Exa- you and the freaking <laughs> Batman references. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. He was like an evil Alfred. You know, if like Batman was evil, he would be Alfred. Um, because whenever there would be murders or whenever like he didn't, Holmes didn't have time to clean up or anything like that, Pat Quinlan would go in there and I'm assuming like clean up after him, wash the sheets of blood, whatever they, whatever they did. He would do that. Um that was his that was his accomplice one of his accomplices and so the reason i bring him up is because people believe that pat quinland was the one that set fire to the murder castle before it opened as the museum or whatever um of course there's no facts to back that up it's just a theory um but another interesting thing about 
about that is H.H. Holmes and, you know, the Murder Castle, the Murder Hotel, whatever you want to call it, it inspired um, American Horror Stories Hotel, the season hotel. Oh, have you yeah. seen that? No. You don't watch American Horror Story, right? No. I have a life. Lame. <laughs> what? You have a life? Apparently you do not because American Horror Story is awesome. But anyway, so yeah, so like they have a season called Hotel. I actually like it. Some people don't. I really like it. I think it's cool. Um, but the hotel, HS Hotel is based on H.H. Holmes and his murder hotel slash castle. And it's also based on the Cecil Hotel, which is like a really like crazy like some paranormal stuff has happened there. There's a lot of like um, activity. Is that the one in LA? Yes. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of activity. Richard Ramirez stayed there. So serial yeah. killers have stayed there. A lot of like paranormal stuff has happened there. Mysterious deaths have happened. So that is definitely a topic I'm going to cover later on in the podcast uh, series. The Cease. Yeah, Cecil Hotel. I'm going to cover that. But yeah, so those two hotels or these two, I guess, topics is what inspired American Horror Stories Hotel uh, season. But another thing is that Pat Quinlan, which is the caretaker for H.H. Holmes, um, he, he was kind of like the inspiration for um, the character in H.S. Uh, Hotel. She goes by the name of Hazel Evers. I know you haven't seen it, but for the fan, there's a lot of H.S. fans out there, trust me. Um, for the fans that have seen it, um, James March, which is Evan Peters' character, he's kind of like... He's kind of like inspired by H.H. Holmes for sure. He's the guy in charge of that hotel. He's the ghost there. Um, he's he has that serial killer dinner when they all when they're all together. Obviously, they don't. His name's not H.H. Holmes in the show. It's James March, but he's most definitely inspired by H.H. Holmes, who was, you know, who ran the show of the hotel, and he was almost like the godfather of all serial killers, to be honest. Um, so yeah. So Evan Peters' character, James March, he has like a, a maid and her name's Hazel Evers in the show. And the maid is like almost like the equivalent of what Pat Quinlan was um, to H.H. Holmes. Like she's like uh, super loyal to him. She cleans up after his murder. She like washes the sheets of blood. She scrubs the floor till they're clean and like, you know, pretty much getting rid of all evidence. She was like super loyal to him and all of that. So she was the... Um, he was Pat Quinlan was the inspiration for Hazel Evers. Just wanted to throw that out there for the AHS fans, because I'm an AHS AHS fan and I love that. Um, so yeah, that was definitely something that's really cool. So with the letters that the Peitzel daughters have written, the police use that to track um, the remains, to track and find the remains of the young Peitzel, Howard Peitzel. They were able to find his teeth and bits of his bone in the chimney at the house in Indiana. Dang. And that's thanks to the letters that the girls wrote. So, letters that the girls wrote. So, if it hadn't been for them and them writing the letters, you know, detailing where they were and what the dates of all that, they would have never found their brother. It's quite possible. So, they were able to find him. That's at least good. Um, <clears throat> okay. So, yeah, we're gonna touch on the the trial and death of H. H. Holmes. Holmes was placed on trial for the murder of Benjamin Peitzel and his three children. In October 1895, a trial date was set. The the trial of the century, filled with manipulation and theatrics, would shock spectators for years to come. Holmes dismissed his counsel in an attempt to control the courtroom. So I guess something like what Ted Bundy did, where he's like, he represented be, himself. Yeah, represent yourself. I'm going to be my own lawyer. He did that. He fired his attorneys and wanted to just represent himself. So he was like the OG of it, the original. Um, on the third day of trial, 
Carrie Peitzel, Benjamin Peitzel's wife, took the witness stand, recounting the insurance fraud and Holmes taking her three children across the country, never allowing her to see them again. The entire courtroom cried with her, um, which is crazy. It's like everyone in the courtroom was crying. Even the judge and the detectives who worked the case, they were crying too, like during this testimony, which is kind of crazy to think about because like not everybody cries, you know what I mean? But everybody yeah, was crying. Like judges aren't supposed to cry or like yeah, exactly. police there or anything like that, you know? Yeah, you have to be like stoic and you got to be unbiased. Mm-hmm. Um, but everyone was crying except H.H. H. Holmes, who just seemed indifferent as he was just... And he was doodling on a notebook, like on a notepad. Um, so everyone was crying. And he was just like drawing to not really caring. The letters she'd written to her parents um, or the letters written to her from her kids, uh, from kids, the ones Holmes intercepted and police later found in his custody gave the prosecutor a perfect timeline of events. With the cards quickly stacked against him, Holmes hired a new attorney to take over. As the days rolled into weeks, the courthouse crowd grew and grew. Georgiana Yoke took the stand. This was H.H. Holmes' third wife. By the mere sight of his wife, Holmes fell apart, sobbing uncontrollably. Georgiana told all she knew about her husband, but unfortunately, she wasn't privy to the darker side of his personality. She only knew, like, the good part of him, you know, like, what he wanted Mm -hmm. her to see, essentially. Um, But essentially, like, he started crying when she walked into the courtroom, but... This is very likely to be, like, a ruse. Like, yeah. he was probably acting because he realized, like, oh, shoot, when everyone was crying, like, I, I must have seemed like a, mom's, a monster because I didn't cry. I was just yeah. doodling on the no- notebook pad. It's crocodile tears. Exactly. So it's, it's very likely that it was just fake tears um, that he was crying. Holmes' new attorney uh, offered no witnesses. Holmes made no statement of his own at all during the trial. So not one juror looked him in the eye when they entered the courtroom to read the final verdict. Guilty of all accounts. Now behind bars, William Hurst offered Holmes a large sum of cash in exchange for the confession of every crime he'd ever committed. And Holmes accepted. It's here where authorities learned the true details of the Peitzel's horrifying death. Um, so again, so this guy, William Hurst offered Holmes $7,000, uh, at the time, which again is like 250, about $250,000 in today's money. That's it. Jeez. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) On the final days, while Holmes awaited his hanging, he believed that he was literally morphing into the devil himself. He said that his face was becoming elongated and that horns began protruding through his scalp. Holmes said he felt like his appearance had greatly changed and contorted while being in jail and that he began to take on the appearance of the devil. Of course, this is probably an exaggeration, um, but he felt like he was... Like he wasn't literally turning into the devil, you mean? <laughs> That's what? I don't believe that. Oh my God, my word. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, of course it's an exaggeration, but like, I don't, I don't know why he would say this, you know? Like, was he feeling guilty? Was he feeling like... He's probably just crazy. Going like, yeah, maybe he was losing his mind. That's probably what it was. Or he just always wanted to really be like the actual devil, you know? Yeah, because he always said the devil live, you know, lives inside me. He's been with me since I was born. Yeah. And now he's saying he looks like the devil. He's starting to look like the devil. Yeah, who knows, man? But on May 7th, 1896, at 1025 a.m., authorities officially hanged H.H. H. Holmes nine days before his 35th birthday. How's that for birthday gift, right? <laughs> early, yeah. early birthday present for the best, dude. Right before he died, he recanted his confession and said that his autobiography was a complete fabrication. Because he was concerned his body would be dug up by medical men, he requested that his grave be filled with concrete 
which was granted, which to me is insane. Like, why are you going to grant the special request of a, like a serial killer? I know. Like, like even, uh, once. even here, like here in Texas, like, you know how you used to get like a, a last meal? Yeah. They don't do that anymore for death row people. Really? Yeah. That's good. You should have to eat whatever the cafeteria is serving that day. Yeah. Because well, why should you get any like thing? Why should your last day on earth be special? Like you yeah. took the lives of so many people or even one person, you know, mm-hmm, it's true. It's crazy, man. But yeah, it's crazy. Like he requested that his grave be filled with concrete um, and they approved. They actually did that. His grave was filled with concrete. Kind of smart because if zombies ever come around, you know, <laughs> he's not getting out. So he, he screwed himself over, really. That's true. I think the reason why, well, the reason why he wanted to do that was because he was afraid that grave robbers were going to come and do what he did all his life, rob his grave. He was afraid that he was going to be dissected and they were going to dissect his brain and see what made him tick, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So pretty much everything that he did in his life, like dissecting people, stealing their bodies, their corpses, you know, just... He didn't want it to happen to him. Exactly. He was a little hypocritical. <laughs> Hypocritical H.H. Holmes. Hypocritical Beach. Quadruple H. Yeah, exactly. Um, So, yeah, he did that, which is interesting. So, yeah, so to this day, I mean, in the book, he confesses to killing 27 people. But detectives and a lot of historians and researchers into H.H. Holmes' life, they believe that it was closer to about 200, maybe even more than 200 just because he was able to kill so many people in secrecy and in the privacy and comfort of his own, essentially, home, you know? Yeah. Without getting caught. Holmes would write in his autobiography of his innocence and said, quote, In conclusion, I wish to say that I am but a very ordinary man, even below the average in physical strength and mental ability, and to have planned and executed the stupendous amount of wrongdoing that has been attributed to me would have been wholly beyond my power. So... He wrote that in his autobiography to, like, try to convince people that, like, hey, I'm just an average guy. I'm not even that smart. I'm not that strong. Like, I, I could have never have done all these things that you accuse me of. Yeah. But again, he's just a master manipulator, master liar, because we know he's actually very smart, very intelligent. And we know he's capable of doing a lot of damage. Um, so, yeah, when Holmes was finally hung from the gallows, though, it was said that his neck didn't snap um, so instead, he died a slow death. His body was twitching until he was pronounced dead uh, 20 minutes later. So he died kind of a painful death. Yeah. His neck didn't snap. So the, was, way they hang, they, the, the way they used to hang people, was, like the noose was supposed to break your neck when you, when you drop, you know? Yeah. And so you would be passed out and unconscious and then suffocate that way, you know? But if it didn't break your neck when you were dropped, you would just suffocate and that would be it. Yeah. Um... At least it's kind of nice to know that he kind of suffered a bit when he died. Yeah. yeah. So that's good. Um, it's fantastic. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> uh, another interesting fact that I wanted to throw in there before we get to like the last, I guess, section. Um, is there actually... So before like vinyl records, before, uh, you know, phonographs, there was... They had these things called like... They're wax cylinders. Mm-hmm. And that's how they would like record audio on it and play it oh, like wow. you could record music or interviews and it's like it's literally just like a wax cylinder and that was like the very first rendition of i don't know the, the modern day like record player or phonograph 
music player, I guess you want to say it. You know? So that'd be the really hipster thing to have. Yeah. If you were a, a wax cylinder instead <laughs> of a, a record player. Yeah. Like you're the most hipster if you have a wax cylinder player. I have to think about that. Yeah. Looking to get one. But they're super rare and super hard to find. Um, but the reason I bring that up is because there was a, there's actually a man who collects them and he years ago stumbled upon a box of like wax, these wax cylinders. And one of them was unmarked. Like it didn't have any, any markings on it. It didn't have any labels or anything. So he played it and the wax cylinder is actually a, a like an audio like confession of H.H. Holmes confessing like some of his crimes. So it's oh, wow. actually like H.H. Holmes voice, um, like crazy. on it, on like on the wax cylinder, um, which is super crazy, super cool. But in the, on the wax cylinder recording of Holmes, you know, he's talking and confessing his crimes. He speaks of, you know, he says the quote that he said that I, that I quoted earlier about he was born with the devil in him, you know, that he couldn't help. Um, he couldn't help his desire to kill. Um, but he also says, so according to the wax cylinder recording, he says to have only ever felt regret or remorse for one murder. And that was of Minnie Williams because he said he thinks that he actually loved her. So he didn't, he didn't even actually say like, yeah, I regret killing Minnie Williams because like I loved her. He says, I think I actually loved her. He, he was, yeah, I might've loved her a little bit. Maybe I didn't, I don't know. Maybe she was just hot. So exactly. But he says, (laughs) he said, uh, yeah. So I, I, the only regret or remorse was for Minnie Williams, me killing her because he thinks that he could have loved her. Um, but he also states, I think I did a good job of it. So it's almost like a back, it's like a backhanded, like, I don't even know what you want to call that, but he's like, I think I loved her, but either way I did a good job of doing it. Yeah. So he's almost like speaking about like, he almost sounds like a man like, yeah, I regret this, but like if I had the opportunity to do it all over again, I would probably do it the same exact way. I would still kill her and still regret it, but I would still do it. You know, it just, this guy's, uh, so he basically said he had no regrets pretty much. I guess. Yeah. I guess you could say that because he said I did a good job of it. I don't know. The mind of, of, uh, HH Holmes for you, but yeah, HH Holmes is like so fascinating. Like everything he was able to do or everything that he did, if he didn't turn to a, a life of crime and like killing people, he would have been like a really smart, like businessman. He would he could have accomplished a lot of things, you know. Mm-hmm. He could have invented things, maybe or patented things that could have helped people, because he was really smart. But he didn't ambitious. apply himself in the right way. Exactly. He did. Def- he definitely did not. Um, had he, he probably would have accomplished great things. But yeah, I mean, honestly, he's he's probably one of my he's yeah he's definitely like one of my favorite serial killers, H. H. Holmes and. The Zodiac Killer, those two are like my top favorite, probably top three at least for sure. But anyway, so that that concludes like the the um, the crimes and murders, the trial and the death of H. H. Holmes, and the last section of this episode, we're going to be talking about um, a correlation between H. H. Holmes and Jack the Ripper. So specifically, there is a theory. Um, there's a theory out there that H.H. H. Holmes was actually Jack the Ripper, that they're actually one and the same. Um, and I know many people may think that's crazy. For some of you, you may, may have never even heard of this theory before. I hadn't heard of this theory until maybe like two years ago. But there is a very, very good docu-series on this uh, on the History Channel, and it's actually available on Amazon Prime. 
if you have that streaming service. It's called American Ripper, and it's an eight-part um, series where the great-great-grandson of H.H. H. Holmes, um, I forgot his first name, something Mudgett, but he has the Mudgett last name. He's the great-grandson of H.H. H. Holmes. He goes um, and does research with a, an ex-CIA operative, and they pretty much – it's just eight episodes, and each episode is like 45 minutes, so it's a, it's a really lengthy documentary. Um, but I highly recommend you watch it because it's very informative, a lot of details. But after watching that documentary, I'm like, man, like that – there's some very, very compelling evidence that would suggest that H.H. H. Holmes could most definitely be Jack the Ripper. Uh, and we're going to touch on that right now. We're going to dive into that. Um, and to be honest, I'm kind of a believer now. I'm, I'm like, a, I, I feel like H.H. Holmes is probably the most likely suspect after. Can I say why I don't think he is? <laughs> sure, go ahead. Because I don't really think that he's Jack the Ripper. I'll tell you why. His M.O. is just so different from Jack the Ripper's. Like, Jack the Ripper, he has those five murders that he's pretty much confirmed for. They think he really committed more like 11, but there's five definitely he was confirmed for. The first four, it was like women, like like prostitutes that he found in the street, you know? He killed them outside in the street, kind of like hastily done, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But um, except for the last one, he killed the woman indoors in her house. But it seems so different from what H.H. Holmes was doing, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah they're, they both kind of had like medical elements to their killings or whatever, but yeah. There's no way. So I hear everything you're saying, and it's playing perfectly oh into. My God. No, I'm serious. I, it's, it's gonna be, it's gonna play perfectly into my argument because everything you just said, they touch on that in the documentary. That's why I like definitely suggest everyone who's into whether it's H.H. H. Holmes, whether it's Jack the Ripper, or whether it's just serial killers in general, go watch that docu series because it's really good. It touches on that how their mo's are different, but it actually kind of answers that question or like something you would think that's an issue. It's actually not really that big of an issue. So we'll, no, we'll dive fake, in. Fake news. That's what I'm calling it right All now. All right, Donald Trump. <laughs> Take it easy there. It's going to be huge. It's going to be huge. <laughs> All right. Huge uh, let's, uh, let's dive into it here and see what we got going on. So there is well-documented evidence of H.H. Holmes' whereabouts throughout his life due to him being a swindler and a con man who left a trail of legal paperwork essentially everywhere he went. He left a, left a trail of paperwork all over the country, but specifically in Chicago. Um, from his various criminal schemes and lawsuits. He had upwards of 60 lawsuits in Chicago alone. And that's not even touching on the different states that he went to, you know, and committed schemes there. Um, So the paper trail suddenly stopped in July of 1888, right before Jack the Ripper started committing his murders in London. And there's no paperwork or paper trail for Holmes again until April of 1889. Um, This is after... Jack the Ripper's five canonical murders. Um, this evidence alone does not mean Holmes is the Ripper, of course, but it's a very compelling coincidence because what you have here is before, before 1888, you have essentially a written account and paperwork, paper trail of Holmes' entire life from a young boy to going to college to working at a psychiatric place to all these different things that he did in his life. We can all trace that back. We all know we know when he was there and why he was there because of these paper trails. However, it suddenly stops in July of 1888, and the paper trail continues 
in April of 1889 and onwards. So for the rest of his life, after eight, April of 1889, we can, again, track his whereabouts by lawsuits, where, what he was doing, what city he was in, what state he was in, why he was there, and stuff like that. So it's just so, super weird that there would be like that short gap where there was no activity at all, especially considering that H.H. Um, H. Holmes died of a rel- in a relatively at a relatively young age and he did a lot in his time span like he was busy i mean you saw he was always like conning people he was always taking out loans he was always trying to seduce his employees his female his female co-workers or not co-workers but his female employees <laughs> um killing people you know selling dead bodies articulating corpses he was always busy he was a very busy guy so just the fact that there's that gap there is a very compelling argument um in my opinion. So from July of 1888 to April of 1889, there was a gap in movement and legal business paperwork for H.H. H. Holmes. You know, why is that though? Where, where was he Where was he during this period and what was he doing? The Chicago Public Record Archives has records for Holmes on a weekly and monthly basis because that's how active he was in Chicago. They, so they had like actual like paper archives in, in the city of Chicago. It's public record. You can actually go pull it weekly and monthly accounts of what he was doing. Um, but during again, during the span, there's nothing of him at all. Can, can't be found. Maybe he was just taking a break, a little <laughs> sabbatical from killing people and conning everyone, you know? Sabbatical? Yeah, <laughs> yeah right? He needed a, a refresher. Uh-huh. <laughs> it, it, Went I to the beach, you know, he... You know, he's, he started reading some poetry, <laughs> went out to the cabin in the woods. Took some crocheting classes. Yeah. Cooking exactly. classes. He was trying to find himself, really. Maybe did some online dating. I think so. Got yeah. some Tinder. Yeah. Downloaded Timber, t- Timber. Tinder or Bumble. Or Hinge. It's possible. Oh, God. <laughs> you and Hinge, man. <laughs> Hinge is underrated. I recommend all you lonely people out there listening. Give it a shot. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Give it a shot. You, you just might find the one. You know? Yeah. Just might find the love of your You're life. Probably not. You'll always be alone. But anyway. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, a friend of mine from high school, like, he actually met his wife on Tinder. Like, so it's possible to meet. And he murdered her like eight years <laughs> <or something? laughs> No. But like, he met his wife on there. So it's possible to meet the love, your, you know, love of your life. But I don't know. I mean, it's probably improbable. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe, just... maybe not. But it's, it's possible is what I'm trying to say. Um, so back to H.H. H. Holmes and the Jack the Ripper correlation. Another piece of evidence is that H.H. Um, H. Holmes is a trained doctor who specializes in dissection. And based on the Whitechapel murders and Jack the Ripper's M.O., most detectives and ripperologists believe that Jack the Ripper was a doctor or had some form of medical training. Some form of formal medical training, mind you. Uh I mean, when you think about how the murders were done and how he removed a woman's uterus and eviscerated her and sometimes different vital organs, to me, there's no doubt Jack the Ripper was a doctor or was formally trained. Like, I think that's that's just a fact. It's not even an opinion. Like, he had to have been formally trained, especially when you think about the time frame, the amount of time that he had to eviscerate a woman and remove her organs. Mm-hmm. Uh, the documentary I was watching, like, it said that a lot of times he only had about because like police would roam the streets yeah they were walking around yeah kind of looking for him too and this is like he would he would perform these acts these murders in the streets so he'd only have about 10 to 15 minutes to conduct these removals so he had to be very like good at his craft he had to be very like you know um seasoned and experienced enough to be able to 
remove someone's organs and uterus and eviscerate her in 15 minutes. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's why this most graphic one was the one he did inside. Exactly. And this more is, time. Exactly. And we're going to get to that too. We're going to go one by one and it's, um, but it's so pretty much things are starting to like, these are just like the facts that, um, they're coincidental evidence. Correct. But it definitely points in HH Holmes direction. He was, he was medically, he specialized in dissections and he specialized, he was a doctor. He had formal training for sure. Um, there's that gap between July of 1888 and April of 1889 that is unaccounted for. So already we have really two solid um, pieces of evidence to support it, but we're going to dive into some more. So there are documented letters that Holmes wrote in which he speaks about having traveled to London, and he speaks about how difficult it is to find his favorite newspaper there. So based on these letters that Holmes wrote himself, we know that he's been to London and he's traveled to London. Um, Holmes never states what year he was in London, but these letters at least prove that he had traveled to London before. In other letters, Holmes also claimed that he roamed the world looking for those he could kill. Of course, he could be over-exaggerating. He could be, could be lying about that, you know, trying to embellish his criminal career. Um, but it is worth noting, at least, that he, he did write that. But we do know for sure that he did write, that he did go to London because... He stated about how difficult it was to find his favorite newspaper over there. And we know for sure that he did not go to London any time before the year 1888. So think about that. We know for sure he didn't go to London before 1888 because we we have like exactly – we're able to verify exactly where he was. He was in school. He was being raised in New Hampshire. We have all this evidence to support that. Wouldn't that kind of like hurt that case though because the Ripper – Kind of seemed to have some knowledge of that neighborhood he was in, you know? He knew the back alleyways, he knew, how to, he, he knew how to avoid detection and stuff like that. You know, so it's a guy that was probably familiar with the neighborhood, which I think would be hard to do if you're a foreigner. Yeah, that's a good point. He, he Jack the Ripper must have known, like, his, his surroundings at least decently well. I think, I think he must at least have known the police schedule. Yeah, like more than, more than anything. Uh -huh. Because even if you don't know your surrounding areas very well, at least you know, like, okay, there's going to be police officers, like, coming around, coming around you know, this time. Um, but yeah, no, that's, that is a good point. That is a good point. I will give you that. Um, so if we scratch beneath the surface, the parallels become more apparent. So the Ripper has, Jack the Ripper has this reputation of being this savage, um, this savage killer who just killed, up, killed on impulse. He just reacted and killed that way, right? Mm -hmm. But that's actually far from the truth um, because he actually wasn't a messy slasher like he's portrayed in popular myth or movies. He was actually very calm and careful. He was a calm and careful killer. He was calculated. He knew you know, when the police were going to come. He knew like their schedules or he at least knew the, the shifts. That way he knew like how to avoid and not be caught. Um, the incisions he would make to remove the organs were very precise. They were not slashing. They were not like aggressive like that. Yeah. They were very calculated and he was calm. And you, if you think about it, you would have to be pretty calm and calculated to perform those kind of murders in the streets. That's public. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. dark. Yeah. It's at night or in the wee hours of the morning, but you have to be, you know, it's in public still. There's people out at bars, you know, there's people walking home. There's prostitutes. Pubs in England. Pubs. Oh, right. <laughs> there you go. There's pubs, you know, and there's there's prostitutes walking about. So he, you definitely have to be someone who's um, calm and calculated and in control of your emotions. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, to be able to not get caught. So, 
so yeah, so I just had to disprove that myth right there because the Ripper was not some savage who was like just killed on impulse. Rather than simply lunging at victims with his knife, he would first choke them and lay them quietly down on the ground before commencing the evisceration. This is part of the reason he didn't alert anyone within earshot to what was going on, which makes sense. If someone's screaming, you're in public, you're going to get caught more than likely. Yeah. So he would choke them, choke them out, pass, make them pass out first, render them unconscious. Then he would lay them on the ground and eviscerate them, mutilate them. This is part of the reason he didn't alert anyone with an earshot of what was going on. Holmes, too, had a mytho- mytho- um, sorry. methodology. Holmes, too, had a methodical killing style Damn. and was also a trained medic, meaning he was adept at the removal of organs. Of course, one of the most widely held beliefs about Jack the Ripper is that he had some degree of medical training and the removal of organs. So, again, you know, these are just sort of some parallels that are lining up. It's also important to consider that the last that the last of the official canonical victims of Jack the Ripper was killed in her own bed rather than on the streets. And she wasn't simply cut open, she was utterly obliterated by the Ripper's blade to the point of being almost unrecognizable. This was a huge escalation from the previous Ripper killings, both in terms of context and ferocity. In other words, Jack's style had evolved. Um if the theory of H.H. Holmes' grandson is correct, this could have been Holmes trying out different methods and moving towards the more grandiose style that he displayed in the Chicago murder castle. So what they're saying is that... Well, okay, I'll get into that a little later. But pretty much what they're saying is there's a, there's a definite, definite escalation of the crimes of the Jack the Ripper murders between the first murder... Because Jack Thurber's first murder, her throat was cut. She wasn't eviscerated at all. Mm-hmm. The second one, she, her throat was cut and she was eviscerated. They removed her uterus. The third one, again, we're going to get into this, but the third one, he didn't, he was interrupted mid, like... Yeah, like he probably heard someone coming or something. Yeah. He actually saw someone, like, right like behind him, like, kind of across the street. So he just took off on foot and he was interrupted and and the fourth victim was the same night. There was like a double hit. Yeah. And he was like, he was. You could tell he was angered. So we'll get into it, and I'll and I'll dive into what what's going on there. But it's very very intriguing stuff here. So based on all the documented evidence and paperwork and paper trails for Holmes' life and time in school and crimes, we do know for certain that Holmes had not been or traveled to London any time in his life before the year eighteen eighty eight. That we do know for certain. That means Holmes must have visited London sometime after the beginning of 1888. So in the documentary, Holmes' great-great-grandson and the CIA operative who's helping him, Emeryllis Fox, they, you know, they're doing research and they're digging into a bunch of different archives of the city to try and figure out um, H.H. Holmes' whereabouts during this time period between July 1888 and April 1889. Something very intriguing does come up. Um, and it definitely, to me, is not a coincidence. But they were able to find ship logs from 1888 and 1889. Um, and on the ship logs, it is an individual by the name of H. Holmes. And it says that he was a passenger because, like, their ship logs, you know, you pretty much sign in and sign out as you're coming and going. Yeah. There was a passenger by the name of H. Holmes. Um, who sailed from the UK to the US shortly after the Ripper killings ended in 1889. So 
there, there's actually like documented evidence of someone, again, we can't prove it's H.H. H. Holmes, but someone by the name of H. Holmes traveled from the UK back to America in 1889, like, I think maybe like a month after the last Ripper murder, uh-huh. a couple weeks maybe. Um, so it's just very, very, very interesting. You could say coincidental. I don't really believe in coincidences. Um, I don't know. It's just very crazy, like a ship log, you know. Like the manifest, passenger manifest. Yeah. But Holmes is like a pretty common name for British people, you know. Holmes is a common name. Yeah. That's H. That is that is argument that the other side could make as well. Yeah. That Holmes is not that uncommon of a name. Mm-hmm. But H. Holmes. That's even like, it's probably like the most common Holmes like initial. You got Henry Holmes, Harry Holmes. I don't know what um, Harry Holmes. Well, it's a name. Well, of course it's uh, a name. I could just say names. But like, H.H. H. Holmes is the only Holmes I know other than Sherlock Holmes. Hilda Holmes? Who's that? It's just a name, Hilda. Oh, well, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, duh, there, there could be a name of anything. Sherlock Holmes. Oliver Wendell Holmes. That's, that's who the high school is named after. Oh, yeah. But that's not it's H. Supreme Court justice. Pretty much what I'm trying to say is there's like a lot of evidence. It's coincidental evidence, but it's still evidence that suggests that H.H. H. Holmes could be Jack the Ripper. I don't know. I'm not so far. I'm not convinced. I'm gonna be be real. All right, there, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, there, buddy, boy. But I think it's very compelling evidence. Um, again, it's not like the smoking gun per se, but this is definitely interesting evidence that you can't ignore. It gets even more interesting when you think. Um, so what they did in the documentary is they took the two confirmed Jack the Ripper letters. So, Oh, the from hell one? Well, that's actually the third one. They don't know if that's actually a confirmed one or not. I thought that was the only confirmed one because he sent it with like a part of a human kidney. Well, they came with a part of a human kidney, but they're not able to verify whose that was. A lot, it's very popular. It's of a popular opinion that it was um, medical students that were playing a prank. And they were just took – like they have access to like body parts and stuff and that they just put that in the letter because – Again, we don't know for sure, but they said that that could be. So, I'm a believer in that letter. That's why. That's why <laughs> so I you believe that letter, <laughs> yeah, but you don't I believe do. this. It's just it's so it's just so compelling. There's like know? way more evidence for this than there is for that. I don't agree. I don't agree at all. But I do touch on that. So let's get into it here. So out of hundreds of supposed Jack the Ripper letters, police only believe two are authentic and actually written by the killer himself. The first is the Dear Boss letter, and this letter is written in between the Ripper's second and third murders. And it details in the letters that he, meaning Jack, is going to cut the ear off of his victims. This is a detail that no one but police knew as they did not share this with the public or with any newspaper outlet. And in the fourth Ripper murder of Catherine Eddowes, her ear was sliced off. This validates this letter as being authentic. The second letter that police have verified to be authentic and to have been from Jack the Ripper himself is called the Saucy Jack Letter. This letter actually contains smears of blood and bloody fingerprints all over the letter. These fingerprints most likely belong to the killer himself or perhaps the victim. However, this cannot be tested for DNA as the original, original letter has been stolen and lost for decades and all we have are copies and facsimile of it. Also, in this letter, the killer references the Dear Boss letter, which at the time had not been published or released to the public yet. And he also mentions the cutting of his victim's ear again and how he didn't have enough time to cut off his first victim's ear because she, quote, squealed a bit. 
So essentially what this is saying is that these two letters are the only canonical, 100% authentic letters from Jack the Ripper. There are some that are speculated to be from him, like the From Hell letter, but these two, they can definitely confirm because he listed details that only the police and him would have known. Um, and he listed what he would do before he actually did it. So that's how they were able to confirm that. Um, so this information is important. Actually, also, the Dear Boss letter was the first time um, he wrote to the police and the news agencies. And it was the first time that he coined the name Jack the Ripper. Um, and it was a name that he actually gave himself, you know? You know how a lot of times, like, serial killers like wait for a journalist to name them. Like a journalist will come up with their name, like yeah. the Night Stalker, Golden State Killer. Mm -hmm. um, but in this case, Jack the Ripper came up with his own name, a lot like the Zodiac. Or I guess you could say the Zodiac was copying Jack the Ripper because he was first. Yeah. But yeah, they came up with their own name, which was something- That's 10 out, 10 out of 10 name for Jack the Ripper. No, great, I, that's a great name. Great naming skills. Yeah, it I definitely commend, is. Commend him for that. He was the first serial killer to write letters to the press and boast about his crimes. So he was—he definitely was a trendsetter. He was a trailblazer, if you want to think about it in that sense, in a, mm -hmm. in a kind of sick, demented way. Yeah, he was. He kind of set the tone, inspired people like the Zodiac Killer. Yeah, because they—they they all like want to do something like that now, you know. Yeah. They all kind of want to taunt the authorities in some way, you know. Definitely. In the American Ripper docuseries, Holmes' grandson and Detective Fox consult two of the UK's most renowned linguists to study the two letters, the two canonical letters and to try and learn more about the killer. These linguists concluded that they strongly believe that the letters written by Jack the Ripper were written by an American and not by an Englishman. Thus meaning that Jack the Ripper was most likely American. They said that the phrases and verbiage used in the letters were not those commonly used by someone who was British, especially during that time period. For instance, just a couple of uh, phrases and words that were used in those letters that they saw that were um, American phrases and not British were shan't quit. Like, I shan't quit. Um, they said that was American because a British person would say shan't stop. Shan't quit versus shan't stop? Yeah. Like, won't stop, shan't stop. <laughs> won't stop, shan't stop. <laughs> I didn't even do that. That's funny. Um, they also said right away is an American phrase because British people would say straight away. Straight away. Let's go have some tea straight away. I don't know about that. I, I definitely hear that. That's definitely a British phrase, straight away. I've heard a lot of like British movies say that. Not saying that that's like the end all be all, but you know, straight away. These people are British to themselves, mind you. And then fix me is also <laughs> an, me. Is another phrase that is American, they said, um, because British people would say catch me. Uh, if you can catch me and Americans at the time said fix me it was commonly used dear boss is also an American phrase uh, it's not something that it's not something that was commonly used by Englishmen um, so yeah and so they these linguists they read both letters and they just all linguists do it's, it's different from a handwriting uh, analysis an analyst um, it's not a handwriting analysis but it's it's all about like phrases that were used specific words patterns like by the way that you talk and by the way that you write i can tell that you are um an american you know or i can tell that you like your your accent the way you uh your word choice you know exactly 
stuff like that. They use that, like the words you use and the way you write to determine, they can determine your age, they can determine most likely what area, what region of the world you grew up in, just based on that. That's mm-hmm. pretty much what they do for like the colloquial. That's, I just want to throw that word out there. <laughs> <laughs> Colloquial. Is that... It refers to like language of the time. Yeah. Specific place or whatever. So they're experts. These two British linguists. And they determine that it's most... They, they believe it's most definitely an American, not an Englishman. Um, so H.H. H. Holmes' grandson and Amaryllis Fox um, in the docuseries, they also commissioned a forensic sketch artist um, to create a portrait of Jack the Ripper based on eyewitness testimonies and accounts and it's kind of crazy but there's 13 eyewitness accounts of jack the ripper which is a lot like yeah. that's a lot especially for some something that's an unsolved murder or unsolved like case like a cold case mm-hmm. to have 13 witnesses you know that's a lot of people who've seen you um so they they took these 13 different descriptions and testimonies and they took it to this professional um forensic sketch artist and they use a machine they don't even use like an actual like pen and paper they use like a machine to process all this information and all these descriptions to formulate what he would look like um so they created it and the result was an image of a man who looked strikingly similar to h.h holmes um and h.h holmes grandson again i I forget his first name but we'll just call him mudget mudge (laughs) mudge Mudge. yeah the mudget guy um he is actually an attorney um, a retired attorney but he was an attorney for years and he, he says that just, just based on the two sketches alone, like the images, if he were to take that these images to a judge, that they would issue an arrest warrant. That's something that he said. That's a little much, I think. I think it is a little much as well. Uh, but if someone picks you out of like a photo lineup, that's one thing. Yeah. But just a sketch, like that wouldn't be enough just by itself. You know what I mean? I mean, I don't know the ins and outs of the business. Like oh, I do. do. Oh, yeah, you do? Yeah. Because you're a lawyer, right? I've studied law. <laughs> well, like, he's a lawyer, and he says that. I mean, he could be embellishing or whatever. I don't know. I think that is a little much, too, but maybe... I mean, I don't know. I don't know anything about law like that. But... Um, so this, to me, this is the most, like, un... How do I put it? Like, unconvincing part of the evidence side because I feel like a lot of people... Like, for instance, Jack the Ripper was... Just some of the physical descriptions and all of that based on the 13 eyewitness accounts. They said he was either late to mid-30s or late 20s to mid, um, sorry, late 20s to early 30s, which H.H. Holmes at the time would have been 27 at the time of the Jack Ripper murder. So that that fits. Um, They said he had a mustache and described it exactly as H.H. Holmes' mustache was. They said he wore a top hat, um, which is what H.H. Holmes... H.H. Holmes wore. Um, they said he was about 5'7 and of a slender build, which fits H.H. Holmes' description. Um, so, yeah, it does match. But I, the reason I say it's like the probably the weakest part of it is just because I feel like a lot of guys could have possibly fit that description. Especially like when it's dark and it's nighttime. Yeah. You, you know, don't get it, it's foggy. You don't get a good look at somebody. Not saying it's not evidence because it is still evidence. The fact that he fits that description is, is, is evidence. But I just don't think it's as strong of evidence as like the other other stuff, per se. Um, they actually did take the two c- canonical letters to a handwriting analyst, and they did have it analyzed specifically for handwriting to see how much how similar it was to it. Yeah. Um, and they said, unfortunately, it was inconclusive, which means they couldn't say that it was written by him. 
that the Ripper letters were written by H.H. H. Holmes, but they couldn't say that it wasn't written by him either. Um, the reason for this is because H.H. H. Holmes changed a lot of, like his handwriting changed a lot throughout the years. Um, if you compare like his his writings when he was like in medical school to his write his later writings when he wrote his autobiography, they're actually pretty different. Um, the way that he wrote, um, detectives believe that this change was probably because he didn't want to get caught and he was like forcing himself to change the way he wrote to like avoid like detection and stuff like that. That's their theory about it. Um, but it's still like kind of up in the air. We're not really sure why, but his handwriting has changed. So it's inconclusive if the handwriting matches. Okay. So now what we're going to do is we're going to dive into the five canonical Ripper murders and we're going to detail like, like what happened and like the order that they happened in. So, Jack the Ripper's first murder was of Mary Nichols. She was murdered by her throat being cut, and she was disemboweled, but no organs or parts of the body were taken. In the Ripper's second murder, the victim's name was Annie Chapman. She too was disemboweled, but this time the Ripper takes off with her womb. Um, so he cut out her uterus and took it with him. Um, the autopsy technician or coroner who was working on Chapman's body had this to say about the murder the reason for her murder was so that this specific part of the body could be taken i'm most certain of it so the yeah i guess the coroner the technician who was working on her body at the time believed that the murder was specifically so that the murderer could take her uterus wow and that that was the sole purpose of it um which is interesting because like think about motive here He's saying the motive was clearly to take that. So, you know, why would Jack the Ripper do that? What what motive would he have? I guess he wanted, like, a trophy from the victim, you know? Could be. Or he just hated women so much, and it's like a symbol of, like... He could... In one of his letters, he does say, I'm down on whores, is exactly what he said. So mm-hmm. it could be that. Maybe it is a trophy, right? According to the leading Ripperologist in the UK, for dissection purposes, UK anatomy schools look for specific parts of the body... And the uterus happens to be the most notable of what they look for. Um, these UK dissection schools, like at that time, like not modern day, but like mm-hmm. at, the, at that during that time period, um, they looked for specific parts of the body, and the uterus was their most notable. It's what they wanted the most, I guess. Um, and so, someone who had a uterus or a body for sale could profit from it financially. So, it's his theory that this could have inspired someone to go off murdering people for financial gain because they could sell them to anatomy schools. This aligns perfectly with H.H. Holmes and his motive for murder, which is financial gain and greed. So it's, you know, that's like kind of more evidence that, okay, so we do know that in the UK there was money to be made in this industry because just like it was in medical school for Holmes, there was, you could sell a woman's uterus, you could sell organs to medical schools in the UK for money. So yeah, there's definitely possible motive there that's similar to H.H. Holmes. Yeah, so you know, I, I know we already touched on it a little bit, but contrary to popular portrayal of Jack the Ripper and the mythology surrounding him, he was not a savage killer who killed on impulse, but in fact, he was very calm, cold, and calculated. Uh, this matches the type of killer that Holmes was. There is much evidence that suggests that Jack the Ripper learned the police schedule and coverages of the Whitechapel and timed his attacks perfectly in order to avoid being captured or caught in the act. 
which is definitely evident, you know, because um, the, the short amount of windows that he had to commit these murders. Even though it seems like he almost got caught one time. Yeah, one know? time during the third murder. So I guess it wasn't a policeman. That no, it wasn't a policeman, no. It was just a standby, a standerby or whatever. Passerby, there you go. Standerby? Standerby. <laughs> standerby. A guy that was standing there the whole time and didn't see you. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, standing there. Where'd you get this? <laughs> oh, didn't see you there, buddy. <laughs> Murdering this lady. Um, yeah. But this means that Jack the Ripper was a premeditated... He was premeditated in his killings, like Holmes was. And he did not just kill in the heat of the moment, like people think he did. Um, so again, these are a lot of similarities between H.H. Holmes and Jack the Ripper. The weapon that Jack the Ripper used was a surgeon's knife. It was small but pointed and extremely sharp, capable of cutting through flesh and tissue for dissection. This is the same instrument Holmes was an expert at using as he performed dissections on humans many, many times. This surgeon knife is found in a standard medical kit available to doctors and med students. Um, it's an expensive, it's expensive tool and it's not easy to come by. So like, not just like your average Joe can just go and get this kind of knife. It comes in like a medical kit. And to get a medical kit, you have to be either a medical student or a doctor, you know? It's not, it's not easy to get. So the, that fact alone is also very intriguing. Or you could steal one. You could, but, but that's another thing that they talk about in the docuseries. Like, if you're just a normal murderer who's just trying to rip people apart, trying to be savage and just kill and you hate whores, you hate women, right? Or whatever, prostitutes. Why would you specifically want a doctor's knife? Why not get the, the, fir- the easiest thing available to you? Something that can do more damage. Plenty of knives mm-hmm. that do more damage. There's butcher's blades that do more damage. Because you know? I guess he wanted to do the Cleaver. dissections, you know, and that kind of thing. But well, that's exactly. Yeah. It's because he wanted to do dissections. That just more so points in the direction of a doctor or a medical man, you know? If it wasn't a medical man, if it was just a murderer, he would use any other instrument. But the fact, because because you said, oh, he could have stolen it. I doubt I doubt he stole it. He probably was a doctor, or most definitely I think was a doctor. Um, okay, so this is also it gets really interesting here as well. According to Amaryllis Fox, which is the CIA operative and Holmes' grandson, the motive behind the Ripper murders plays a huge part in determining if there is a link between H. H. Holmes and Jack the Ripper. And a good way to determine the motive is by looking at the way in which the Ripter uh, Ripter. <laughs> Looking at the way in which the Ripper victims died. If money is the Ripper's motive, then it's safe to assume that he would have wanted to avoid a struggle and would have wanted to cut the organs of his victims out as quickly as possible. But if he was motivated by the joy of killing, then he would want to watch his victims suffer, and for that, he would need them alive while he butchered them. I think that brings up excellent point. Motive is super important when determining a killer, you know? Um, and that, that makes a lot of sense because if he... If he was just doing it because he like got some sort of high or adrenaline rush from killing, he probably would want to. He most definitely probably would have wanted them to like. He would want them like see them in pain. Like I'm sure he even if you stab someone for one second, it's still, you know, a lot of pain you're like inflicting. Yeah, I mean, I can understand that, but it's not like he shot them. You know what I mean? Yeah, but, but the Ripper victims were like passed out before, and we're gonna get into that too. So, according to medical experts and examiners of the five Ripper victims and autopsy reports, they strongly believe that all of the victims were asphyxiated and rendered unconscious before they were mutilated and their organs removed. This evidence suggests that the Ripper did not care to watch his victims suffer and was not motivated by the cause of 
I'm sorry, was, was not motivated by the act of causing pain, but rather his primary motivation was to dissect his victims and obtain their organs or body parts. Furthermore, this means the Ripper's primary motive was removing their organs for profit or the pleasure he received from dissection. So his motive is either he wants their body parts for profit to sell it or to keep, right? Or he merely received pleasure from dissecting, the art of just dissecting and cutting people open. He didn't care if they were actually in pain. He just liked dissecting people. So those are the two motives. Either way, both motives sound a lot like Holmes, as Holmes took great pleasure in dissection, while also being driven by greed and money, and being ruthless enough to obtain money any way he could without remorse. So, I don't know about you, man, but that sounds... (laughs) I mean, I'm not even done, but, like, that... That, like, I know you were saying, like, oh, oh, well, we actually are not even, we haven't even covered what you mentioned earlier, but just the fact that, like, the motive, like, a lot of people don't really, a lot of people think that, attribute, like, Jack the Ripper's motive to being, like, he hates prostitutes, he probably was some guy that caught an STD, I've heard all the theories, probably was some guy that caught an STD while sleeping with a prostitute, it's probably some, like, prince or whatever, just whatever, but... The reality is it could have very well his motive could have very well been driven by money mm-hmm. or just the fact that he enjoyed to dissect them because he he tried to dissect them in every single case he wanted to dissect them like why you know what i mean yeah. there's there's got to be an explanation to it so while we continue this ripper murders uh, ripper murders <clears throat> ripper murders 3 and 4 were the murders of Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes and they were murdered on the same night on September 30th, 1888. About 45 minutes was the time that separated the two murders. Elizabeth Stride was the first to be murdered that night, and he threw his victim to the ground and cut her throat, but soon realized there was another man nearby who saw him commit this murder, so he took off running on foot as fast as he could. She was murdered but not mutilated because Jack did not have time to finish the job and do what he usually does to his victims because he had been interrupted by the witness's presence. The second murder that night was the murder of Catherine Eddowes, and it was far, far more brutal. She was dissected and eviscerated. Her kidney and uterus were removed and taken, and she had slash marks on her face and her ear was cut off. The investigators believe this crime was more brutal because the killer was enraged that he had been interrupted in his first murder that night. So he sort of took out his anger and frustration on his victim, is what they believe, which I think is definitely highly plausible you know he's probably like pissed that like he was interrupted so he had to like do it again you know and he was almost caught yeah so he was like subject to some impulse and some anger you know like yeah for the most part he was cold and calm and calculated but he was also subject to impulse like most humans are but so was H.H. Holmes yeah remember he beat his wife he got in a fist fight with his roommate so he he definitely displayed acts of aggression as well so it's like the same thing you know it just if anything it doesn't disprove the fact that it could be H.H. Holmes you know yeah um now a word from our sponsors are you tired of being tired here's a pill that will stop you from doing that (laughs) will stop you from doing that (laughs) oh my god I should be an ad man right You, you actually could be once we get ads right Oh, yeah. The fifth and final victim of the Ripper was Mary Kelly, and she was the only one to be murdered indoors. 
This allowed the Ripper to have more time to do what he wanted with her and to dissect and eviscerate her without being interrupted like he was before. It seems the Ripper was becoming more and more experienced with every murder and was learning from his mistakes, realizing that committing his murders indoors provided more security for himself and allowed him more time to finish his work. Mary Kelly was butchered beyond recognition and her body was skinned and filleted. This strongly resembles the way Holmes would handle many of his victims and their cadavers. Holmes would often skin the bodies of his dead victims. This is a really good point because this is what kind of what I was trying to get at earlier. He, he learned Jack the Ripper was obviously smart. He wasn't dumb. He was a smart man. He was obviously a medical man of some, of some sort, but he was smart because he learned from his mistakes. You can tell by the pattern that he probably got alarmed by the third murder and how he was interrupted because he got, he got mad, you know, that he was interrupted. And so that's why the fifth and final murder was done indoors mm-hmm. because he, he probably realized and learned from his mistakes and was like, if I do it indoors, I'm more secure, way less chance of being caught, and I have more time to do with the body what I want to do. Yeah. So what, what the documentary said and what I believe also is that like if it, if it was indeed H.H. H. Holmes, it would make sense that he's learning from his mistakes because he was 27 at the time of this, right? So he's learning. He, he commits the first three murders or the first two murders. He, he does the third one, but he's interrupted and he's like, okay. And then he goes and does the fourth one. So after that, he's got to be thinking like, damn, I almost got caught. Like that was too close for comfort. Let me improve on the design. Let me improve. Cause he's, again, he's a genius. He's smart. Let me improve and become more efficient. How do I do that? Let's do it indoors. So the fifth victim is done indoors. A lot more damage is done. Mary Kelly's unrecognizable. She's filleted alive or I don't know if she was, well, she was asphyxiated, but she's filleted and mutilated a lot like what H.H. Holmes did with his corpses. So the next kind of like, if you follow that train of thought, the next kind of jump would be the next step. In other words, would be like, okay, I got away with this one and I was able to do so much more. I had plenty of time, didn't get caught. I'm going to make all my murders like this indoors where I would, where it's easy for me not to get caught and easy way, easy for me to get away with these things. So maybe I can now go and build my own, build my own place where I can conduct these murders and not get caught. You know, like if you think about it logically, it does make sense. Like it's not the train of thinking is logical. It's just like, I don't know. It's a huge like jump from like, Killing like prostitutes in the street to like building your own castle just to murder people, you know, that are visiting town. To me, that's a big change in, in style. I mean, you could say that, but if you think about, if you think about the reasons why, so like if mo- if money is the motive, like he's trying to make money. Again, he removed all their he removed a, a lot of their organs so that let's just say, like in my argument per se, he moved their organs so he can make money from them, right? So we have motive, yeah. right? So, but then you're saying, uh, what, what did you say? You were like, like, it's a good, it's like a big jump for somebody to be killing prostitutes in the street, you know? And then to go from that to building a literal, like yeah. building where all you do is murder people in different ways. That's a know? good point. My theory on that is that H.H. H. Holmes, like his perfect victims were the ones that wouldn't be missed necessarily. Like the Chicago fair. No one, I mean, pe- people will miss them, of course, but no one knew where they were really. You know, mm-hmm. they, they, they could be easily, they could easily disappear and no one would, 
no one would be pointed in the direction of H.H. Holmes, you know what I mean? Because they were strangers. Yeah. And in the White Chapel, that was like the slums kind of thing, you know? Like Yeah, it was like the slummy part of uh, London. Exactly. He knew like those people travelers know like those people won't be missed. Like it's pretty prostitutes. No one's gonna miss them if they get if they died. I can I can steal their organs, I could steal their uterus and their kidneys and sell it and no one's gonna care. No one's gonna miss them. If you think about it, it's similar to what he did with like grave robbing. I can rob these graves, no one's gonna miss them. No one's gonna miss you know, they're already dead. Yeah. So it's kinda like the same logic. I understand what you're saying about the jump, but I also can see it on the other side of like, is it really though? Like it is only because it's in London, but like it makes sense if you're a traveler to London and then if you travel back to America and you're back home, it's like, okay, well, I'm not going to attack prostitutes here. I'm going to just, I'm going to do things that are most like easily accessible to me, which would be like, you know, he was also a businessman. So I don't know. Because if you think about it thus far, I'm just not too, too impressed. Because <laughs> if you think about it, he didn't have business. That This is important to note too. Like he didn't have business in London. Like he didn't have buildings in London. He it's also important to note there's no actual concrete evidence that he's ever in London at this time. You know what I mean? There's it's no, all like speculation. There's no concrete and, evidence that he wasn't. <laughs> oh my God. There's no concrete evidence I wasn't either, you know? I mean the ship log. The <laughs> H. Holmes, the manifest. Yes, dude. I, it, well, okay, also, it does say the age of the travelers on these logs. And we'll get into that later, too. But I already see I'm dealing with a skeptic here. <laughs> yeah. I'm a, I'm a truth believer. Truth believer. Okay, so if you look at the Ripper's five murders, you can clearly see an escalation in the severity of the murders. There's not only it's not only because Jack the Ripper was becoming more experienced with each murder, but also because he had more time and coverage while committing the final one. According to many criminal uh, psychologists and homicide detectives, when an escalation of murders occurs like that, like the one we see with the Ripper case, it is very rare for it to suddenly stop. And yet, that is what we see with the Ripper case. It would it would seem as though the Ripper vanished and stopped murdering. Did he, or did he just relocate? Which is more likely? I happen to believe the latter is more likely. <laughs> That's not the only two options. He could have died. He could have gone to jail. You know, a lot of things could have happened to him. It's not just, did he move or did he uh, just stop killing people? I think those are the, probably the two strongest options. <laughs> what? Just because? Just cause? <laughs> I, I, just, I just feel like it is. I don't know. You know, it, in terms of the H.H. Holmes things, I think it's... A strong possibility. Also, this is directly talking about what you're talking about. Uh, modus operandi. The yeah. MO. The more intelligent the killer, the more likely they would be to change their modus operandi or MO because they would know that changing their MO would make it increasingly more difficult for them to get caught and for them to be tracked. If you take a close look at the history books, you'll actually see that there have been plenty of serial killers who have changed their MO before they were caught. So it's actually a very common thing for killers to do or attempt to do. For example, the Zodiac Killer frequently changed his MO, killing by gun, killing by knife. Um, and he was never caught, though. Uh, Ted Bundy did this. He killed in a variety of different ways. He would sometimes choke his victims. Sometimes he would bludgeon them to death with a tire iron. Uh, sometimes he would trick them into his vehicle. Like, just a lot of different things. Um, Jeffrey Dahmer and John Wayne Gacy are also other examples of this. Holmes is a very intelligent criminal, right? With a brilliant mind. He's also very highly adaptable. And after the five murders in Whitechapel, he would have likely thought to himself, how can I conduct these kinds of murders without being interrupted again and without getting caught? This type of logic would have led to him constructing the murder castle, a place where he, you know, 
has the privacy and as much time as he wants to commit these murders. Uh, this line of logic makes sense, and the causality makes sense, in my opinion. <laughs> of course it does. And I rest my case, Your Honor. Oh my God. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. We still have more. Um, okay. So, with that being said, another piece of compelling evidence is there's actually... I know we talked about the ship log earlier, but in the ship log, um, it shows that there's a passenger traveling from the UK to the US in May of 1889. This was after the final Ripper murder of Mary Kelly, and the passenger's name reads as H. Holmes. At the time of the Ripper murders, Holmes was 27 years old, and this was the same age as the passenger on the travel log from the UK back to the US in 1889. If that's not a smoking gun that that was H. like. H.H. Holmes, I'm not sure what is. Like, that's pretty... That's, like, substantial evidence. The, it's hard to argue with that. Mm, that someone else could have been an H. Holmes that happened to be 27? That happened to be his same age, traveling to London during the same gap that we don't, that we don't have any record of him being in Chicago, or in the U.S., for that matter. Like, that, what are the odds of that? That'd be, like, that'd be like me saying, okay, there's someone with your name... Well, at least your initial C. Garcia, who traveled to Seattle the same exact time, who's your exact same age, and traveled to Seattle the same exact time range that you were there. Like, that's just super, super unlikely. The odds of that happening are super, like, low. I don't know. That's, that's, you got to think about it like that, you know? I do. There's just a lot of evidence, man. Give in to the dark side, bro. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, back to more... More evidence. So this is actually super interesting as well. According to police reports, um, there's this lady that ran a lodging house. And on the night of the double murder of Catherine Eddowes and Elizabeth Stride, Strode, one of the two, um, she stated that she saw one of her lodgers come into the house at 2 a.m., which would have been around, which would have been about 15 to 20 minutes after the Eddowes murder. Um, so the time fits perfectly. The next day, her husband went into the lodger's room after he had left and saw a black medical bag under the bed. When he opened the bag, he discovered a long, sharp knife and two blood-stained cuffs. So not only was the lodger a medical man, but according to the owners of the lodging house, they also confirmed he was an American. This man never returned to the lodging house. So this is just like further evidence that, to me, it's like the nail in the coffin that um, Jack the Ripper was definitely American. Especially if you think about the, the timetable, right after the Edo's murder, he comes in at 2 a.m., which is 15 minutes after that was murder. He is American. He fits the physical description. He has a medical bag with a knife and bloody cuffs. Like, there's just a lot of evidence. Like, what, what, could, he, what could he have been doing at 2 in the morning? Like, cutting, like killing chickens or... You know, he's late. He's studying at the university. <laughs> putting in some late work, you know, on the cadavers. That's it. Wow. I wish you were, like, my judge if I was ever a criminal. <laughs> like, you know, this guy was just, you know, he wasn't killing anybody. He was just, uh... It was a misunderstanding. Yeah, it was clearly a misunderstanding. person's not, person not even dead. <laughs> um, but one of the police's main suspects at the time of the Ripper murders was an American doctor by the name of Francis Tumblety. Um, many of you may know him. He's one of the most popular... Um, Jack the Ripper suspects. suspects out there, yeah. Um, he was also a bit of a con man himself, very similar to H.H. Holmes. Um, he was in London, and he was selling snake oils. He was arrested on suspicion of being the Whitechapel killer, but was released on bail because they didn't have any evidence to hold him. Once released, he fled back to America. 
Tumble T and Holmes are very similar it seems in appearance, but Tumble T was in his 50s at the time of the murder, which would have been much too old to fit the description because every eyewitness account describes the Ripper as being in his late 20s to early 30s. So Francis Tumblety would literally be double the age. So he either had access to the fountain of youth or... <laughs> or the witness descriptions aren't all accurate. <laughs> 13, that 13 people were not accurate. I just find that hard to believe. At nighttime with the fog, I'm telling you. Who said there was fog? You're making stuff up. Haven't you seen like <laughs> movies? Oh, it's my. always in the fog. Bro, you're hypnotized by Hollywood. And it was London in the fall time. Hollywood's all about, you know, like aesthetics and visuals. Of course, they're going to add fog and rain to make it sound more spooky or look more spooky. But I I just think it's very compelling evidence. Yet again, another nail in the coffin of H.H. Holmes being Jack the Ripper, in my opinion. According to detectives, when Holmes was done killing off the rest of the Peitzel family, his plan was to take his wife, Georgiana Yoke, and move to London. This indicates to many that this was a place he was very familiar and comfortable with. Perhaps he thought, since he had killed there before and gotten away with it, he could go back and relocate there to start killing again. Um, And actually, so that's that's a very interesting fact, you know, to take note of. But actually, watching the documentary, I also learned that Holmes actually had a plan before things got crazy and the, the police started going after him. He actually had a plan to build a second murder castle in Fort Worth, Texas. Really? He was going to build it on the land that he got from um, Minnie Williams. Remember how she was like a Texas heiress and she had all this property? The Holmes Ranch Adventure. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, he was going to build it. Like he was going to like franchise the murder castle, the murder hotel. He was going to make it, make another one in Fort Worth. So that would have been crazy, right? We would have had one close by. I know. Could have gone and visited. Would have been nice. I mean, not nice, but you know what I mean. Um, So during the investigation, um, the CIA operative and... H.H. Holmes' grandson, they, they find some of his belongings in um, a bag. And in part of his belongings, he has a bunch of pictures, almost like a dozen, I think, of people who are linked to him in some way. Um, and one of those pictures is believed to be a photo of Catherine Eddowes, which is the third Ripper victim, I believe, or the fourth Ripper victim. No, yeah, it's the fourth Ripper victim, I think. Um, and that is just, like, that's crazy, like, the fact that, again, it's believed to be, they, they can't really confirm it, but they did take that picture that they that they had, that they found in Holmes' belongings, and they compared it to a picture of Catherine Eddowes, and they got a 64% match. And that doesn't really seem like a lot, but apparently to the the expert, the investigator who was there, he's saying that a 64% match, is, match of a photo is actually very, very, um, it's very, very highly likely that it's the same person in the photo because I think he said everything, anything 50% or higher is like pretty close to like being the same person. Um, like back then, like getting a photo taken was kind of a big deal. You know, not a lot of people had that done. So it wouldn't like, it's well, not like there's a bunch of pictures around yeah, people, you know, but they took the photo of Catherine Eddowes when she was deceased. Like the police did like for autopsy purposes. So they took oh. a clear picture of her face and then we have the picture that, of Catherine Edo, apparently, but we don't really know if, again, it's, it's unverified. But we have a picture of someone who looks to be like Catherine Edo's in H.H. Holmes's possession. And then when the experts compare the photos, he said it's a 64% match, which according to him is a strong possibility that it is the same person. So again, like, again, it's not really a for sure, but it's another example of why, like, let's say it is her, right? Why would H.H. Holmes have a picture of Catherine Edo's 
someone from London, and this guy's in Chicago. Why would he have a picture of her in his belongings? Well, she was known at that time as being like a ripper victim, you know? She was somebody yeah. with that kind of notoriety. But why would he have her and no other ripper victim? Because he was like a fan of, you know, he could have had more pictures and she didn't find him, you know? Maybe. He's a fan of the ripper's work. Maybe he was, you're right. Maybe he was a fanboy. But that that concludes the the evidence that I have supporting that H.H. H. Holmes could be could be Jack the Ripper. It's it's a theory that H.H. H. Holmes and Jack the Ripper are one and the same. Again, I think he was on a sabbatical from killing people and everything. <laughs> he was just on a on a ranch chilling somewhere. That's my that's you think my theory. He was just like drinking sweet tea on a ranch, chilling, yeah. not killing anybody. Exactly. I don't know. I find that hard to believe, but maybe you're right. Who knows? Maybe I'm wrong. But I think after watching that, again, that docu-century, docu-century, that docu-series is really, really good. Very interesting. Even if you don't believe it, at the very least, it's entertaining and it's very informative. So you should definitely go watch it um, if you're at the least bit, bit interested in it. And while we're on the topic of like good you know, documentaries to watch, I'm going to just give out some recommended resources to go look up, like some books you should check out. Um, some documentaries you should check out that are all about H.H. Holmes, America's first serial killer. Highly recommend these. Um, they're very interesting, very informative. So for recommended books, um, I recommend a book called Depraved, The Shocking True Story of America's First Serial Killer by author Harold Schechter. Um, I also recommend The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson. Um, I recommend the book H.H. Holmes, The True History of the White City Devil by Adam Selzer. And I recommend, of course, Holmes' own autobiography written by him, uh, Holmes himself, which is called Holmes' Own Story. And so, yeah, for books go, those four books, you can't go wrong with them. Definitely check them out. For, dec- for documentaries, I would check out... Um, American Ripper, which is that eight-part documentary series um, done by the History Channel. Um, it's on Amazon Prime. That that whole series is pretty much about like linking H.H. Holmes to Jack the Ripper, and it's super cool because you also learn about H.H. Holmes' like crimes and past as well. Um, I recommend watching American... I'm sorry, not American Ripper. I already said that. I recommend watching Murder Hotel. Um, that's another good documentary about H.H. Holmes. And then H.H. Holmes, America's First Serial Killer. That documentary is very good as well. And I recommend going to the H.H. Holmes Wikipedia page. It's a nice, (laughs) short, succinct, you know, kind of summary of his life and everything he did. (laughs) Wikipedia, huh? Exactly. Because it's like the most reliable That's where I get... Anyone can put anything on there pretty much for some of those articles. So you know you're getting the best possible information. Let's just say there is a reason that our teachers never let us use Wikipedia as a cited They saw source. it as a threat to what they did. That's why. <laughs> they didn't want the truth out there. That's one way to look at it, right? But, um, yeah, so that's that's pretty much it. That is That concludes, you know, episode two, part two of H.H. Holmes, America's First Serial Killer. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you guys learned a lot. That one was a long one. There was a lot of information Tons of information with that, but I hope you guys liked it and enjoyed it. Um, we, we were able to cover, you know, his, his early informative years, um, kind of his origin story. Um, we covered his, his crimes and murders, covered his trial and death, and then we finally covered a possible link between H.H. Holmes and Jack the Ripper. Um, but thank you guys so much for tuning in. That's all the time we have for today. I'm your host, Darius. 
This is Carl, the co-host, guest co-host. I'm Carl, and it was nice talking to you guys. <laughs> Thanks for dropping by, man. Appreciate it. You're listening to The Devil's Hour, a podcast for the strange and unusual. Um, thank you so much for tuning in, and I'll see you guys next time.